There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are influencers on the internet. Which means Tubi is more popular than sponsored posts for digestive enzymes and high coverage foundation. More popular than soft launching your boyfriend. More popular than making boomers explode with rage when you tell them how much you make on a single post. Tubi, it's more popular than influencers. See you in there. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court. It's an old joke, but when a man argues against two beautiful ladies like this, they're going to have the last word. She spoke, not elegantly, but with unmistakable clarity. She said, I ask no favor for my sex. All I ask of our brethren is that they take their feet off our necks. Hello, and welcome back to Strict Scrutiny, the podcast about the Supreme Court and the legal culture that surrounds it, a project of The Appeal. I am one of your hosts, Leah Littman, and today I am joined by two guests that I am super excited about. First, we have Josie Duffy Rice, the president of The Appeal and host of the acclaimed Justice in America podcast, who now joins Yuli Mistal as the only person to ever make a repeat appearance on the podcast. So thanks for putting up with us twice, Josie. <laughs> Thank you for having me. That's very esteemed company. So I'm very grateful. And we also have with us today, Jay Willis, a senior contributor at The Appeal, whose writing we have talked about on this podcast before. So welcome to the show, Jay. Hey, thanks so much. You joined Senator Sheldon Whitehouse as the only straight, white, cis man to ever <laughs> appear on the show. So congratulations. Also privileged company. You know, Josie and I met 10 years ago in 1L section. And this is exactly what the law school career services offices promise you. Like you go to school, <laughs> you make friends, you get in the alumni network. And then 10 years later, you're writing on the internet, doing tweets, doing podcasts, living the dream. You know, they said, you should go clerk for the Supreme Court. And we said, we want to do something even more influential than that. We want to tweet. <laughs> uh, we're very, very glad to be here. So thanks for having us. Let this be an inspiration to all of the law students, particularly first year law students listening. Um, make friends and then you will find yourself on a podcast and social media uh, platform with them 10 years later. Um, so today we are going to be covering, in addition to whether and when and why to tweet, some Supreme Court news. Uh, we'll also be previewing a case that will be argued this upcoming week. And then we will talk about a set of cases that together and collectively raise some important questions about the scope of policing authority. Let's get started on the news. The Supreme Court decided to hear Wooden versus United States, a case about the Armed Career Criminal Act. Um, ACCA is the federal law that prohibits certain people from possessing firearms, including people with a felony conviction. Ordinarily, that crime is eligible for a maximum of 10 years imprisonment, but ACCA imposes a mandatory minimum of 15 years for people with three or more prior convictions for, quote, violent felonies that were committed on occasions different from one another. 
Most of the court's prior ACCA cases have addressed the definition of violent felony, but this case is actually about what it means for offenses to have been committed on occasions different from one another. And specifically, it's about whether it is enough that offenses were committed sequentially rather than at the same time, even though the offenses might have been committed on the same day, just in succession, at the same place, etc. So the court will hear this in OT 2021, but I wanted to highlight it since ACCA is a passion project of mine. When we say offenses that might have been committed on the same day in the same place, we mean that very literally. His previous offenses for which he was sentenced are one aggravated assault and then 11 burglary convictions, 10 of which occurred in the same year, 1997. And they occurred in the same year because those 10 burglary convictions are from one night when he and some friends burglarized a mini storage facility in Georgia. And the way those got charged is that instead of getting charged for burglarizing the facility, he got charged for burglarizing each individual locker. That's 10 different counts. And as a result, 20 years later, he gets hit with a mandatory sentence under ACCA. It's just yet another sign of the judiciary and, and the system sort of pretending that they're their hands are tied without acknowledging all the discretion that went into making the decisions to begin with. So the mere idea that this was 10 different charges instead of one charge um, is because of a whole host of circumstances, many of which don't even have to do with the defendant. In different circumstances, he would have pled to one charge. He would have pled to something different. You know, the question about um, sequentiality is so interesting given that there was so much discretion basically misused or or abused to begin with in this case. And the extent of prosecutorial discretion is something that this court has actually exhibited some concern about, at least when it comes to, say, like white-collar criminal defense cases, like the Bridgegate case of Kelly or, you know, the campaign finance, more campaign fraud uh, cases like McDonnell. Um, but, you know, here the question is always, are they going to evince that same concern when we are talking about a different kind of or a different set of crimes? And, you know, thus far they haven't exhibited quite as much concern, although, you know, their willingness to invalidate some provisions in ACCA is unconstitutionally void for vagueness is perhaps a step in the right direction. Um, and mm -hmm. hopefully, you know, that set of concerns will be present when the court later hears this case. Yeah, I mean, relatedly, I think, not just SCOTUS, but the state legislatures, um, Congress, any other elected officials are just generally now starting to exhibit some suspicion of prosecutorial discretion. But it's notable that they've only sort of started to care about that when prosecutors have said they were going to be more lenient, they were <laughs> going to decide to not charge things, and not when we face 30 years of overcharging. And so, you know, after three decades of a mantra that prosecutors have good judgment and they know what they're doing and they have unfettered discretion and they can do what they want. We are now seeing people all of a sudden be like, well, I didn't mean not charge drug cases, <laughs> um, which just really highlights the just how hollow so many of these principles are once they are actually challenged by the beliefs of those people who make the decisions. Yeah, if you ask anyone who's not a lawyer, how many places did Wooden rob? <laughs> They would be like, well, one, one the, the storage facility. It, like, it just wouldn't occur to you to be like, well, oh, so he went into 10 different lockers. I certainly see how that is 10 independent constituent crimes. 
And it's an example to me of the way the legal system finds ways to just stack punishments, especially on mm -hmm. like vulnerable people. You can see that there's a logic behind this, but is it the logic that we want um, prosecutors to be using? Is it the logic we want the system to be employing? And we also know that when an opposite logic is more convenient for them, right, they'll use that one. It's not the sort of thing where you say, well, everybody knows if you rob 10 different storage units, that's going to be 10 different crimes. <laughs> you know, this is not intuitive. Um, and yet he's going to pay a serious price for it. And perhaps if the court is willing to actually police the use of this ACA, you know, different offenses committed at different times, perhaps they will then revisit 924C, which is just in its own category of horribleness as far as the stacking mm -hmm. of federal offenses. So on that um, perhaps slightly optimistic note, uh, maybe we can point out something that is actually perhaps a reason for optimism on the Supreme Court's docket, which was this past week, the Supreme Court vacated a court of appeals decision that had granted qualified immunity in McCoy versus Alamu, in which a Texas corrections officer allegedly beat and then maced a prisoner without provocation. So the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, being the Fifth Circuit, granted the guard qualified immunity because there was no case with similar facts saying that beating a prisoner and macing them without provocation violated the Fourth Amendment. The United States Supreme Court remanded the case for the Fifth Circuit to reconsider in light of the Supreme Court's opinion in Taylor versus Riojas, uh, the case we've talked about before, where the court said corrections officers were not entitled to qualified immunity for keeping a man in extremely unsanitary and grotesque conditions for several days. Um, of note is that this petition in McCoy was actually brought by the same organization or one of the organizations that was involved in the Taylor petition, Rights Behind Bars, a fantastic new organization that is doing a lot of these prisoner rights cases and trying to change the law in this area. Yeah, another shout out to Rights Behind Bars. They're relatively new. Yeah. They're a very scrappy organization. They don't have a ton of staff and they're really, really having an impact. And they've carved out a practice area that didn't exist before, which was getting qualified immunity wins in the Supreme Court for prisoners. Like that that literally right. wasn't a thing that happened before, uh, you right. know, the Taylor case. Groundbreaking stuff. So seeing these two, as we said, unusual qualified immunity decisions coming from the Supreme Court makes me wonder a little bit if this is a possible example of the court tracking public opinion. Like qualified immunity cases for so long have pretty much uniformly gone one way. But in the midst of this national discussion that we're having about police, police violence, and even more generally the role that police do and should or should not play in society, it seems like taking action against literally some of the worst cop abuses is maybe literally the least the court could do to sort of get behind that. And especially at a time also when you have this new conservative supermajority of which many people are very rightly afraid and about which they are very correctly concerned. It seems like this is a pretty low-hanging fruit option to maybe earn some goodwill and legitimacy. That, even more than goodwill, could be somewhat of a driving factor here. I think the fact that there's so much skepticism about the police and there is an undercurrent of policing as illegitimate. I think contributes to the need for the court to ensure that the police are still seen as 
an accountable, legitimate body. So I don't know how conscious that is, but it's not surprising. For years, they could we could get away with never holding police accountable in any sort of way legally, right? And the approval rating of cops pretty much staying the same, <laughs> you know? And it has really only started to shift in the last, what, seven years and really significantly in the last year. And you can see how for sort of any system of checks and balances, the need to reinstate legitimacy by ensuring accountability has to at least be a consideration. Yeah, that's interesting. So perhaps, you know, these qualified immunity decisions that go against police officers or corrections officers are in some ways legitimating an institution that has started to be questioned. Totally. I mean, the, the narrative, the not an accurate narrative, right, is that police can do and as state actors can do whatever they want and there is no punishment. Even more than the, the question of public opinion for a body that is supposed to ensure state accountability, that has to be um, at least worth noticing. One case that the Supreme Court also just decided that kind of goes against this trend a little um, is the Supreme Court's recently released opinion in Brownback versus King. So that case held that the Federal Tort Claims Act um, judgment bar prevents plaintiffs from suing federal officers for violating the federal constitution. Once plaintiffs tried and uh, unsuccessfully um, tried to sue the federal officers for violating state law and had their case dismissed under the Federal Tort Claims Act. Um, We previewed that case briefly and just wanted to note the result here. Some other developments that are more maybe will make their way to the Supreme Court. Um, Hopefully not in one case, uh, and I'm not sure about the other. Um, So uh, a cert petition was filed in the Harvard Affirmative Action case, um, which we've talked about before on the show, Students for Fair Admission versus Harvard. This is the case arguing that Harvard's race-conscious admissions program is illegal because it violates prohibitions on discriminating on the basis of race. And the plaintiffs in the case are now specifically and explicitly asking the Supreme Court to overturn Grutter versus Bollinger, the Supreme Court case that had said that it was permissible to consider race in admissions when the court upheld the University of Michigan Law School's admissions program. So this would be a case that the court wouldn't hear until next year, but it is I think, an extremely significant case to watch, um, again, given that it could effectively end all race-conscious admissions. I just find the people who have built a career out of this so interesting because they really care about unfairness as long as that unfairness happens between September of your senior year of high school and April. <laughs> Otherwise, <laughs> like the the history of of privilege or fairness before that is of no concern to them. The only thing that matters is these 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 couple of months of school admissions. Um, this case is also interesting that we're talking about it because Jay and I met in an affirmative action reading group in um, in our one L year, and he I had seen him wear a sweater around his neck before this. So I was absolutely sure he was in this affirmative action reading group for reasons different than me. And I was ready to, I knew I was just going to have to fight this Republican (laughs) sweater neck wearing guy in my section. And then it turned out he had pretty good politics, but not great style. But his style has improved markedly. I did not expect to have to litigate my 10 year old (laughs) sartorial choices on this podcast. (laughs) Um, I yes, think... you did, because I bring them up all the time. 
I guess that's a good point. But mm, rather than issue a substantive defense, I just want to say that obviously I have a lot in my past that I'm not proud of with respect to sweater proximity to my shoulders. This is something I'm trying to learn from. Uh, I'm trying to do better on in the future, by which I mean... You have improved so much. Never really. High five to you. Uh, Shout out to all of our listeners right now who are like very sheepishly undoing their fleece from their shoulders. Um, I understand sometimes it gets a little drafty, but not so drafty that you want to put it on. And I just respect whatever decision you make. That's fine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, this too is in some ways like a note of encouragement for young law students listening, right? Like you too can learn. The Supreme Court can learn uh, how to improve its qualified immunity doctrine. Uh, Jay Willis can learn how to uh, improve his dress. So, yes. you know, there we go. Yes. You okay. do not have to be today who you were yesterday. We can all change, exactly. you know? Speaking of not having to be today what you were yesterday, um, on Thursday evening, a district judge in Texas dropped a real hammer. Um, So this judge, Jay Campbell Barker, who was nominated by Donald Trump at the ripe old age of 37 or 38 and confirmed at 39, um, invalidated the federal eviction moratorium. That moratorium protects something like 40 million people from being evicted in the midst of a pandemic. And the judge said that the federal government lacked the authority to regulate evictions under the Constitution because evictions are, quote, not economic activity. They merely concern possession. Checks out. Straightforwardly correct. Um JK, no, uh, evictions, those are literally the remedy for the breach of a contractual commercial agreement between a landlord and a tenant. When a tenant fails to pay, an eviction is a landlord's remedy. Um, To suggest this is not economic activity was just quite... um, interesting to read uh was thinking about sending this case to my con law students as like a fyi but then also didn't want to confuse them so really a mixed bag here you know i really recommend going to your landlord and saying i'm not gonna pay my rent but i don't worry it's not even economic activity so it's pretty much irrelevant i mean it's just it's just such a perversion of the yes of reality It only works if you so badly twist the meaning, like the common understanding of what an eviction is, that you completely lose sight of, as Josie says, like any normal semblance of reality. Like he he talks about how this is the criminalization of possession. Like what? No, this is your house. It's your house, man. And uh, it's, it's just like more... Poison brain, conservative, commerce clause, contraction. It's just yet another example as well of where this job forces you to dishonesty, right? The reality is that this guy knows that this is economic activity. He has to have some sort of reason to draw the conclusion he wants to draw, which is I think people should have to pay their rent or get kicked out. But I think the other thing worth mentioning here is just that this one judge is having such an impact on potential impact on 40 million people. But really, this has been like a failure of government to begin with, right? That like we are in a situation where 40 million people are at risk of eviction because they can't pay their bills because they've lost their job and there is no government help. And, you know, we are this is really a Band-Aid. This this moratorium is I mean, it's a very important Band-Aid, but it's still a Band-Aid on a much 
bigger crisis. And the fact that we are expecting the moratorium and the judiciary about the moratorium to solve what is a much bigger problem is um, in itself kind of an issue. I'm sure we'll solve that bigger problem in infrastructure week, though. So, oh, yeah, don't worry. We got it. (laughs) Yeah. I was also thinking about this case in the context of from from a couple of years ago now, NFIB v. Sebelius, when Roberts famously argues that the purchase of health insurance is not economic activity and thus can't be regulated under the Commerce Clause. And everyone at the time was like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And it's fantastic that we're now a couple of years later and the argument- We've heard something through, dumber. <laughs> yeah, pay, pay, paying Congrats. for your house, not economic activity. <laughs> right. So uh, maybe now we can switch to the preview of the case that we wanted to discuss, which is Brnovich versus DNC slash Republican Party of Arizona versus DNC. And this is a case actually about enforcing the Voting Rights Act, uh, which is why I am enthusiastic to have fellow Voting Rights Act enthusiasts with me on the show today. So maybe we can do some background on the Voting Rights Act and an explanation of the Arizona laws in the case before we actually get into what the question is that the court is going to address. Strict Scrutiny is brought to you by Americans United for Separation of Church and State. Missouri legislators said the quiet part out loud with their total abortion ban. Quote, Almighty God is the author of life, end quote. They also said, quote, God doesn't give us a choice in this area. He is the creator of life. Plus, quote, from the biblical side of it, life does occur at the point of conception, end quote. Religious extremists are forcing all of us to live by their beliefs, as in the Alabama IVF case. Americans United for Separation of Church and State exists to stop this kind of abuse. On the eve of the 50th anniversary of Roe, Americans United and their allies sued Missouri, representing 14 clergy from seven different denominations. AU's lawsuit challenges Missouri's abortion bans as a violation of the separation of church and state. AU's guiding light is freedom without favor, equality without exception. AU works with partners on all sides of the aisle, of all religions and none, to ensure the wall between church and state stands strong for all. Keep up with this ongoing case at au.org. There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are in France, which means Tubi is more popular than cigarettes for breakfast. It's more popular than considering iced coffee a total abomination. More popular than loving political revolutions. More popular than mère and mère somehow being different words. Tubi, it's more popular than being French. See you in there. I live by routines, especially my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. Because when Sunday rolls around, I'm not scared. I got my shopper on the way with all my favorites. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. So, the Voting Rights Act. Where to start? Okay. The Supreme Court defanged the 
Section 5 preclearance regime, which was really the crown jewel of the Voting Rights Act in the 2013 decision Shelby County versus Holder. The preclearance regime had required certain states with particularly poor histories of racial discrimination in voting to obtain preclearance, that is, federal permission, before enacting any changes to their voting laws or procedures. After the court basically you know, cut the legs out from under Section 5, what remained of the Voting Rights Act was Section 2. And Section 2 prohibits of its own force those voting laws and policies that discriminate on the basis of race. And included in that prohibition are facially neutral laws, that is, laws that don't explicitly mention race, that result in selective disadvantages on the basis of race. This is sometimes known as a disparate impact standard rather than an intentional discrimination standard. So laws that result in disadvantages, even if not intentionally. And the statute was actually amended to include this standard, the disparate impact standard, after the Supreme Court's decision in City of Mobile. So the question here is basically what kinds of laws or policies does the Voting Rights Act prohibit because they have the effect of selectively disadvantaging voters on the basis of race or color? The two laws at issue here, the first one prohibits counting provisional ballots that were accidentally cast in the wrong precinct. So if you're a voter and you decide to vote on election day as opposed to early or by mail and you show up to the wrong spot, your ballot gets thrown out. This policy has a disproportionately adverse impact on voters who live in urban areas where polling locations change frequently. Uh, Non-white voters tend to vote outside their designated precincts about twice as frequently as white voters. There's a great quote from the Ninth Circuit below who says that finding your way to uh, your polling place in Phoenix is like, quote, the changing stairways at Hogwarts constantly moving and sending everyone in the wrong place. And then your second law prohibits the collection of ballots by most people who aren't the person actually casting the votes. It's sometimes, I think, pejoratively called ballot harvesting. The collection of these by community groups, political parties, campaigns, volunteer organizations. So this law also has a significant impact on different groups. So there's a finding in the lower court that outside of Arizona's two most populous counties, Native voters less than a fifth of them have access to home mail service, and they may need to travel up to two hours just to get to the nearest mailbox. So both of these laws make it more difficult for people of color to participate in democracy, which is why the conservatives and the Republicans are so excited about them. So in the course of deciding whether those two Arizona laws violate the Voting Rights Act, The bigger question that the Supreme Court is going to be answering is, you know, what kinds of laws actually violate Section 2? That is, like, what do you have to prove in order to establish that a law results in disadvantages on the basis of race or color? Um, So one argument that Arizona is advancing is that state laws have to result in a substantial disparity rather than just a mere disparity in order to implicate or violate Section 2. And Arizona says there's no substantial disparity here because the laws only affect a few thousand 
voters. You can discriminate against people as long as there aren't that many people. Yo, you can be racist, <laughs> but just not like too racist. <laughs> right. <laughs> Only if there are a few thousand of them. In addition to concerns about, you know, tolerating some degree of, again, like making it harder for voters of color to participate in democracy, it's also the case that some laws with, you know, relatively small effect can be quite consequential. You know, the margin of mm -hmm. victory in some of these states will be something like 10,000 or so votes. So you put one of these laws on the books, you put another one of these laws on the books, and then all of a sudden you determine the outcome of the popular vote in a state. And given how the Electoral College works, you know, that could also decide the fate of a national election on top of yeah. statewide races. Especially in, in, in a place like Arizona, right? I mean, that's yep. an important state. I mean, I'm in Georgia, right? And we we were down to the wire yes. in the 2020 election. And I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that the only reason Georgia went blue is because there was a concerted effort over a decade of ensuring that people of color had access to the polls which still isn't much to write home about, their access, but it's better than maybe it was in the past. I mean, a few thousand voters is is huge. That's still an embarrassment to democracy if you are right. making it you know, right. so burdensome or excluding a few thousand voters from voting right. in an election. Like, that's not how democracy is supposed to work. And even in the most sort of cynical cost-benefit analysis, like the allegations about voter fraud, the proven, in, in any sort of instances that it's been proven, it's never a couple thousand votes. No. It's maybe a couple of votes. Right. So even if you were just measuring, what are we risking? The fact is that like every single time we have an entire sector of the American public that is willing to risk more people being disenfranchised than a couple people, whatever, wandering into the, a precinct and voting twice. I'd like to talk about the margin on which the, the Republicans place so much emphasis here, because basically it argues that, as we've said, it doesn't affect that many people, so it can't be illegal. And the number in the 2016 election of ballots that got tossed as a result of being out of precinct was like three or 4,000, something like that. And they say it would be too difficult for us to count those ballots. But like, I don't think you can really have it both ways here. If it doesn't affect that many people... Why not just count the votes? Like, again, if you're if you asked anyone who's not a lawyer, what's a better fix for this problem <laughs> that, as you've conceded, affects a de minimis amount of people? Is it better to take the time to count those or is it better to be like, sorry, you're not in this election? Like, that's the right thing to do is Arizona had about two and a half million votes cast in its 2016 presidential election. It takes days, weeks now to count votes in a presidential election. Who cares? Take the time, right. get it right. And it's really part of this, in my view, like this broader tenet of the conservative movement, which is that democracy is like kind of inconvenient for them. They feel like they are the ones who should be in power. And elections are just sort of this like hurdle that they have to clear in order to stay that way. It really is very toddler logic. Like, this is too hard, but I want the reward for doing it's, you know, even a slight examination, it doesn't add up. And it really is only um, explained by, like you said, wanting to leave people out of the franchise, which, by the way, is this is not a deviation from any sort of American tradition. Right. What we're talking about with the Voting Rights Act is uh, 50 years old. There was actually a beautiful essay in The Atlantic this week 
by Van Newkirk about the fact that his mother recently passed away and she was born the year the Voting Rights Act was passed. Uh, and she was in her 50s when she died, right? Like, what we're seeing is this is the American tradition, not democracy, but disenfranchisement while pretending to care about democracy. And we seem to be inching closer and closer back to what that looked like at its worst moments. I think it's worth mentioning that the Arizona GOP has the single craziest social media accounts on earth like full that's QAnon, saying something like, that is really yeah, no, saying something. it's really bad i mean it's like very like a lot of like a lot of conspiracies a lot of QAnon, a lot of like it it's just not surprising um and makes it even more concerning that the, these are the people who you know have some sort of political power in the state significant political power in the state and there is no question what they're going to do when given the opportunity to disenfranchise voters. Yeah, these are the people that censored Cindy McCain, Jeff Flake, and right. so on, you know, for deigning to suggest that maybe we should elect the person who didn't incite an insurrectionist mob uh, to right. storm the Capitol. Oh, my gosh, I forgot. They were like, you can't be part of our club anymore. <laughs> and they were like, we don't care. It's <laughs> cool. Whatever, man. Another argument that they are advancing as to what the Voting Rights Act could mean is what some people have started calling the equal opportunity theory. Under this theory, a state law or policy doesn't violate Section 2 so long as the state affords all voters the theoretical equal opportunity to vote. That is, a state can end voting practices that are used by a greater number of voters of color so long as it provides an alternative voting procedure that is, again, theoretically available to anyone. So let's say, for example, more voters of color use early voting or mail voting. Under this theory, a state could end all early voting, all mail voting, and the Voting Rights Act would have nothing to say about that because those voters could, again, still vote in person. Um, and this is the equal opportunity theory that, you know, the state Republican Party is advancing. So how far would that go? I mean, could that go to only having two polling places in the state? And if you have to drive three hours, you can still vote? I mean, I'm not a big slippery slope argument fan, but that one feels real, real messy. Yeah, I mean, this one, again, like taken to its conclusion, is a state can eliminate all alternative forms of voting besides in-person voting. And that's just nonsensical, given what we know about, you know, different groups using different kinds of voting, you know, eliminating voting procedures or policies that are disproportionately used by certain groups is, again, just kind of an embarrassment to democracy. Like, why would you make voting harder, particularly for particular groups? Like, that seems exactly like the kind of thing the Voting Rights Act was designed to remedy. Not to be outdone, um, we have the real Enforcing the Voting Rights Act enthusiasts, a group of Republican senators led by Ted Cruz um, and 10 other Republican senators, including Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. I love the way that sounds. <laughs> they are arguing that Section 2, if it actually prohibits state laws that result in disparate impacts on voters of color, or any meaningful disparate impact standard would be unconstitutional. Um, this argument sounds outlandish, but this is an argument that came close to succeeding at the Supreme Court 
almost a decade ago in the context of a different disparate impact statute. So in Ricci versus Stefano, the court was asked to essentially decide whether a federal statute prohibiting employment policies with a disparate impact violated the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution because it required employers to take race into account when deciding what employment laws or policies to pursue. And a majority of the Supreme Court kind of ducked the question in an opinion by Justice Kennedy. Justice Scalia wrote separately to say, you know, someday we're going to be forced to confront whether statutes that prohibit disparate impact liability are actually constitutional. And the issue, again, kind of went away when Justice Kennedy wrote this Fair Housing Act opinion saying the Fair Housing Act prohibits policies with a disparate impact. But now with a different majority, you know, the idea that disparate impact liability is unconstitutional is kind of back on the table as far as an argument that might attract some Supreme Court justices. And so, I mean, this this brief sounds kind of out there, but, you know, as we were talking about when we were suggesting in some corners of the internet slash Article 3, uh, evictions aren't economic activity, like, stranger things have happened. Mm-hmm. Look, if anyone can make that argument with a straight face, Ted Cruz Cancun. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I saw your face really excited to say something. And I was like, hmm, I wonder what point Jay's going to make. And it was the worst joke ever. <laughs> but will he take Snowflake with him if he argues the case? Um, we'll have Poor to wait Snowflake. to find out. I know. I know. Um, okay. So another question in the case is about whether these Arizona laws intentionally discriminate on the basis of race or color. Um, So some ads in support of the bill included one that was put together by a Maricopa County GOP official who managed to generate this ominous looking surveillance footage of a man who appeared to be Hispanic. And the ad called him a thug. And this man was stuffing a ballot box with illegal votes. Um, And of course, the rationale for this law was that it's necessary to prevent voter fraud, despite there being no evidence that voter fraud exists in ballot collection. um, And, you know, that has never really taken place in the state. So that's another legal claim in the case, aside from um, whether the statute results in a disadvantage on the basis of race. And I think this has a really important intersection with some of the voter suppression laws that we're seeing unveiled by Republican state legislators right now which is the argument that Arizona is making is that even if the lawmakers who voted to pass this bill barring ballot harvesting, even if they were wrong that it was necessary to prevent voter fraud, as long as they believed it in good faith, it can't violate the Voting Rights Act. And that is precisely the rationale that Republicans are trotting out in the aftermath of the 2021 election for these new voter suppression bills. And it's just a really easy sort of pattern cycle to follow, right? Trump says the election is stolen. People who voted for him worry about voter fraud. And then Republicans say, well, my constituents are so concerned about this. We have to address this. So in Georgia, the quote is, we need to restore confidence in the ballot box. I'm quoting from Republican lawmakers here. In Pennsylvania, they say thousands of constituents have shared with us their concerns regarding the 2020 general election. 
so on. And it's this sort of rhetorical sleight of hand that cloaks the same old voter suppression agenda in the trappings of this anodyne-sounding election integrity movement. And my concern is that the court is basically being asked here to bless the precise rationale that's being offered in favor of this legislation. This has been going on, I mean, especially in this form, right, for years, where there has literally been a major controversy or or major wrongdoing invented in thin air. You know, voter fraud, the fact that it takes up as much space as it does in the political sphere is completely illogical, given that it's not even a thing. Now this is turbocharged, but we've long seen Republican politicians intimate about voter fraud and then say they need to pass stricter laws because this is something that people care about. They only care about because you brought it up. This is your fault. I think it's also just another reminder of who they care about when they say election integrity, right, and trust, because actually passing these laws just reinforces a long history of people of color, especially black people, not trusting that the democratic system is supposed to work in their favor, because it's not. There are very few black communities where you go to where people are like, you know, really feel like their vote matters is being counted and it's easy to to cast. But that's not actually concerning to to these politicians. What's concerning is that their people are worried about it. Yeah. Um, It's sad because in some ways, like, it's a larger cycle and phenomenon about exactly what we saw with the 2020 election and specifically, you know, on January 6th when Congress met to certify it, which is, you know, the various senators and representatives who objected to the election said, well, there are concerns about the election, but there were concerns because they said there were concerns, right? So like they generated the basis for the objections and then they objected on the basis of their own generated concerns. And that circularity just again, like reinforced, you know, what culminated in the attack on the Capitol and, you know, all of the problems that resulted. And, you know, this is what is happening on the state level and has been happening on the state level with respect to voter fraud as well. I got to say, it's kind of like a great tactic. I'm going to like use this in my household. I'm like, we should watch Legally Blonde again. And I'm like, everybody (laughs) is saying we should watch Legally Blonde again. So I just feel like I've heard a lot about Legally Blonde lately. So I feel like we really need to watch it again. I mean, just generating your own controversy and then responding to it. Well, but I mean, you're joking about this. But like, more seriously, going back to something we were talking about earlier in the episode, qualified immunity, you know, that's kind of what we're suggesting may have happened with the Supreme Court's attention to actually Mm -hmm. policing the excesses of qualified immunity, which is many people started saying many people are concerned with qualified immunity and what this means about the accountability or lack thereof of police officers. And then all of a sudden, you know, that concern started to resonate, you know, with the people it needed to resonate with and something happened. So, you know, this power shouldn't be abused, of course, and like made to have our democracy be made worse. Um, But, you know, this is something that does seem to work on some level. That's why tweeting works, children. Yeah, exactly. I'm also thinking about earlier when we were discussing in the evictions, the distinction between criminal possession of real property versus what are we talking about here? Losing your house. And Mm -hmm. this is a really prominent feature of issues like voting rights within the conservative legal movement is obfuscating the intent by really dealing in abstractions. So when Chief Justice Roberts was a lawyer in the Reagan administration, he couched his opposition to the Section 2 effects tests by arguing that the violations, quote, provide a basis for the most intrusive interference imaginable by federal courts 
into state and local processes. And even today, you'll hear this argument that what's really at issue here is federalism, the proper delineation of responsibilities between state and federal governments. But like all due respect to you, Leah, no one outside like the very upper echelons of academia and the legal profession care about federalism, right? What they care about is, is my vote getting counted or are my elected officials reaching over backwards to throw my votes out. It values mm-hmm. Have process. you talked to diners in Pennsylvania, Jay? <laughs> I'm pretty sure what they care about. Um, They're like, you know, democracy is important, but it's just actually much more important to me that the federal government stay out of this one. Local right. control. Local control. <laughs> exactly. Right, right, right. Exactly. Yeah. Spheres of sovereignty. Right. Take that to the ballot box. Right. It just values process over substance. And because the substance, which is, again, disenfranchising people, and particularly people of color, is not popular. So you have to make it about something that sounds good, or at the very least, too boring to care about, because your actual position does not have popular support. Right. So anything else on Brnovich? My opinion is that it's bad. (laughs) Not a fan. (laughs) Jay for the Supreme Court. Um... Okay, so as I noted in the introduction, we also wanted to talk about a cluster of cases that the Supreme Court is hearing this term that touch on the Fourth Amendment um, and about policing rights in the home or protections in the home from policing. One of these cases the court heard this past week, Lang versus California, um, and that case is about whether a police officer can follow someone into their home without a warrant simply because that person committed a misdemeanor, they're a noise infraction, and the police were in pursuit of them. I mean, obviously, Fourth Amendment doctrine just generally is is kind of a mess and very screwy, and it just, this reemphasizes, right, I mean, to Jay's point about federalism, it reemphasizes when the justices are focused on principle and when they're not. Overall, these might be important questions, the felony versus misdemeanor, the violent versus nonviolent, or hot pursuit, or I mean, all of these, it's not that the variables are completely irrelevant, but just that the fact that whether or not someone has Fourth Amendment protection so closely turns on these very thin lines um, that actually aren't clearly defined anyway is, I think, symbolic to me of Again, when the court is willing to rely on principle and values and when they're not, you know, you don't hear Roberts talking about federalism now, <laughs> government intervention now, when it's some, you know, the cops coming into, um, you know, in the same way that he's talking about federalism in the voting rights case. And I just think it highlights once again, and we see this all the time in criminal justice policy, you know, you have these rights, except when they're inconvenient for us or except when we think that those rights are worth trampling in this exact moment because of, you know, what we see at at a glimpse. So the other Fourth Amendment case that the court will hear in the March sitting is Coniglia v. Strom. And it's about whether what's known as the community caretaking exception to the Fourth Amendment's warrant requirement extends to the home. So this community caretaking doctrine, the court created it in 1973 to give cops basically leeway conducting warrantless searches while performing what the court called community caretaking duties. So things that cops do that aren't related to investigating or solving crimes. So the archetypical example here is a car that gets in an accident. It needs to be towed and maybe the police officer happens upon it and he gets out and as this car is getting ready to be impounded, 
He just does a check to see what's in there. This is relevant, of course, because in the 1973 case, KDV Dombrowski, such a search of a car turned up evidence of, let's say, very much criminal in nature, homicide. So since that Katie decision, courts have expanded that doctrine, let's say, well beyond the context of broken down cars. And they do so because, as we all know, police in this country are charged not only with ostensibly stopping crime, but also with doing a whole bunch of other stuff. So judges have extended the community caretaking doctrine to officers conducting uh, checks on noise complaints, performing wellness checks, breaking up parties, helping overdose victims, even assisting people in the midst of mental health crises or substance abuse crises. And so the specific facts of this case are, I think, just interesting to know. Um, a husband and a wife of 27 years, um, the husband is in his 60s, have an argument in which the husband gets out his gun and says, well, why don't you just shoot me and get me out of my misery? The wife spends the night in a motel, calls her husband the next day. The husband doesn't answer. And so she calls the police to do a wellness check. Um, and, you know, that is a community caretaking function that doesn't involve, you know, the investigation of a crime. So the officers go to the house, get the husband to go to the hospital um, and call the fire department, enter the home to do an inspection and seize the husband's guns. Um, so, you know, this notion that like the police perform all of these different functions is, I think, interesting and important. But I think the reality is, as this case kind of illustrates, and even the Katie Casey reference illustrates, like, there is no perfect dichotomy between these community caretaking functions and the investigation of crime. Like, many times investigating a crime could also plausibly involve a community caretaking function, right? Protecting someone from harm, right? Or doing a wellness check or, you know, whatever the cases you want to make, you know, investigating some kind of nuisance in a neighborhood, like all of these things, you know, could ostensibly be community caretaking functions that also overlap with criminal activity. And if you're going to extend the exception this far, you are really going to be, again, blessing, you know, the collection of evidence without warrant, without probable cause, uh, which is kind of like one of the basic protections that the Fourth Amendment has. You know, we'll see what happens in this case. Um, you know, another interesting aspect to this particular case is just because it involves the collection of guns and this background idea about like, well, is the notion that the husband had a gun driving the wellness check and the police officer's entry into the home, it has a Second Amendment angle that could influence the justice's perception mm -hmm. of the propriety of the police's activities. And if they don't think, you know, it was like legitimate or fair for the police to be additionally skeptical because he is a gun owner, um, you know, perhaps that could convince them to limit the community caretaking exception, at least in this case, um, and potentially adopt a general rule to do so. You know, I think what this also highlights, two things it highlights. One is that when we talk about shifting the role of police and having police at the very least focus on what we all imagine to be police work, right? Investigating crimes, addressing, uh, you know, quote unquote, criminal activity. There's often a lot of pushback to that idea. And it's important to remember that, one, that police are incentivized to do um, work far outside of the scope of what we would find reasonable for many reasons, but but one of them is stuff like this, right? Doing the work that ostensibly is supposed to help a community also gives you the ability to bypass some other regulations that you would otherwise have to follow. I think it also is a reminder that, in, and to shift policing, we also have to remember that the current structure of policing is also bad for police, right? It's not actually 
um, good that we are requiring this body of, of professionals to work so far out of their realm of expertise often and just because we know that what they're doing could lead to information about criminal activity, to your point, Leah. I mean, I think that that as a standard um, is so expansive and used so much by by police. You hear it all the time with the death penalty. Well, we need the death penalty because we need it to incentivize people to give us information or we need to violate people's rights or violate our own professional standards because that helps us solve crimes. And that is actually not the standard we want our police force to be following. This is not actually how we want our police themselves think about policing. Yeah, and I also worry that the community caretaking exception could create an incentive for police to act outside the scope of their expertise, right? Like if police start claiming, well, we're doing more a wellness check or performing, I don't know, like mental health care services rather than investigating a crime, you know, then that would lead them right, to be able to justify the collection of evidence if they're performing this community caretaking exception. But performing those functions also puts the police in these situations that they are not equipped to handle, right? Like they have not been trained to actually perform and provide social services to people with mental disabilities. Like a lot of the excessive force cases, you know, in the courts of appeals that involve very grotesque facts, you know, involve people with mental illnesses who the police, you know, are called to respond to and they respond with force, sometimes lethal force. Um, So this community caretaking exception just involves this really like potentially, I think, toxic combination between extremely expansive criminal laws for which you might always be able to find some evidence as well as an ever-expanding scope of police functions for which the police might not be adequately trained. And, you know, if the Supreme Court, again, like, blesses this use of the community caretaking exception, they are potentially creating incentives to expand it even further. To be clear, I mean, that is what most of policing, maybe not most, but a significant chunk of policing looks like today. I think um, the biggest chunk of policing is traffic enforcement, right? But then after that, it is functionally this kind of community caretaking stuff. It is nonviolent emergencies. It is mental health crises, addiction. Police spend about 4% of their time dealing with violent crime, right? And there is this sort of irony in this idea of, well, we need to continue to do this community caretaking because it allows us to investigate violent crime instead of actually just dealing with crime. (laughs) Pretty much any city you go to, the homicide solve rates hovering around 50%. And yet we're arguing about whether or not police should be handling people in a mental health crisis. It's just so clearly that this is not the role for them. And and, And like you said, they also just tend to exacerbate situations like this when an espousal argument, you know, where someone is suicidal, I don't think it reduces anxiety to see the cops show up, right? That's not, usually seeing the cops does not calm you down. (laughs) And what we find is that they are in these situations, not only ill-equipped to handle them, but, but even if they were trained, they're the wrong person for the, for the job. I'm just thinking right now about being one of Alita's clerks and being like, gun rights, Enabling cops. Oh no, what to do? Um, I think one of the, the reasons struggle is po- real. Yeah, right. yeah. And speaking of struggling, I think one of the reasons courts have such a hard time grappling with the outer limits of this doctrine is because they're sort of asking the wrong question, which is why do we have cops do all this stuff in the first place? And in cities across the country right now, they're trying pilot programs. 
there's a great one in Denver, I believe, where they're dispatching non-armed emergency first responders to deal with things like mental health crises, substance use issues. That person who goes to check on somebody, they don't need to have a gun and they certainly don't need to be a police officer. They need to be an expert in those types of crises. Now, like a Supreme Court opinion that limits community caretaking doctrine, it's not like it's going to solve the issue of police funding or divestment overnight, but just the more rationales they have at their disposal to ignore the Fourth Amendment's limitations, the more often they'll do so. And when we talk about the debate over police funding, police divestment, like many bureaucracies, police departments sort of behave like gas. They expand to fill the roles that have been given to them. So you have decades of chronic underinvestment in mental health care and substance abuse treatment, for example, have left police as sort of the default crisis first responder, which in turns lead to bloated and ever-increasing police budgets that make it difficult for cities and states to step back and address those chronic underinvestments that drain police resources, as Josie said earlier, in the first place. The policing crisis we have right now is indicative of a combination of um, uniquely American social problems. The fact that we often divest from social services on the front end and we expect the back end systems to fix that. The fact that we rely on the criminal justice system to address as an individual fault for addressing systemic problems. But also, it's yet another example of the austerity crisis that has like gripped states and localities for decades, and especially, I think, since the 08 um, recession, where you see a, a deep unwillingness to fund social services that aren't cops. And so, you know, in many communities, cops are not only the only thing that can get money, but also the ways that that localities are making money, right, through through fees and fines on the, with with the cops. It's just there is a deeper rot here that the the Supreme Court actually can't address of why we rely on cops the way we do. It is so deep in kind of our ethos and overlaps with so many elements of how we think about social problems in America that it's not a policy solution. It's not a court ruling that's going to fix that. But having the court at least question the false premises of the construction of, of this profession, I think, is would be ideal, would be valuable. Um, it really is just outrageous that the whole idea of the Fourth Amendment is to say, you have some privacy from the government, but we're going to ask the government to do more things, and therefore they get to take more of your privacy. It's like, I thought the whole point was that you guys were supposed to stay out of it. Um, also, I just love the idea of community caretaking as a term. It's just so beautifully ironic. It's, it's like, so benign. It's so, and so sweet. Right. It, it calls to mind they're like gardening, right? right. Like planting totally. flowers. Totally. It reminds it's... me of like one of my toddler's like books. It's just so <laughs> absurd. There's like an implication of benevolence behind it almost. That's, that is it. Absolutely. Police aren't taking care of their community. Like you can't look at policing in this country right now and say they're the ones who are keeping things in order. And nor should they, right? I mean, they don't need to be our community caretakers. I mean, that's not, I mean, they're, they're not doing it and it shouldn't be their job. And the fact that they're failing at it and we're still giving them more responsibility is just such a, such a farce. I was gonna give the example of last year when a hawk 
a huge hawk flew through my bedroom window in the middle of the day and when I called animal control. I'm so excited to see how this metaphor works. Oh, it works. <laughs> when I called animal control, uh, they were like, oh, we don't do birds, like call the cops. And when I called like private, you know, like a, a private specialist asking them to come remove this huge bird. We don't, I, I guess call the cops, call the fire department <laughs> and maybe call the cops. And it's like, the cops don't know what to do with a hawk. <laughs> right. But you know, if <laughs> there's it, a wild bird, there's in a my wild house. bird in my house and <laughs> animal control's like, oh, we don't do that. But maybe the cops, it's like literally, <laughs> that doesn't feel right for anybody. It doesn't feel right for me. It doesn't feel right for animal control. And I'll tell you, it probably doesn't feel right for the cop who has to show up to my house and maybe try to remove the bird. Um, <laughs> and it's just, I think it really just, just underscores how it's the fallback for everything, right? And that's what we call community caretaking. It's just horribly ironic because we really do treat the police, as you were saying, the fallback, like the social safety net as well, right? Mm -hmm. Like we don't have meaningful welfare programs. We send people with um, mental health issues, people who are poor, right? Like these are the people that end up in jails and prisons. And it's because we have just become accustomed to using the police as kind of like the fallback system. Absolutely. The good news is it's a really heartwarming story how, Josie, you've accepted the hawk as a member of your family now for over a year. <laughs> it's true. He still lives here. No, he flew out eventually, and it took another day for the squirrel that came in after the hawk to get out. It was a whole It was a huge situation. I cried multiple times. Okay, but... Is there any chance we were talking about a chase situation? Like the hawk chased the squirrel in and the squirrel was taking refuge. What That's we- exactly what happened. The squirrel was on the on the windowsill. The hawk dove down to get the squirrel, came into the room. The squirrel stayed. We had to go by a, a pool net and like drag the squirrel out. My dad got involved. It was just really, it was really a rough, a rough experience. Um, and I'm still milking it for all I can out of everybody in my house, how I was traumatized during the hawk. I'm pretty sure that like catching squirrels and hawks in your home is somehow necessary to enforce the Voting Rights Act. Either you should have social services to get the hawk out of my house or you should let me vote. I can't, right. you can't not let me have either. That feels unfair. These are the choices. Right, exactly. Thanks everyone for listening. Thank you to Josie and to Jay for guest hosting with me. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks so much, Leah. Thanks as always to Papa Appeal slash Mama (laughs) Appeal. Um, Not quite sure what the right terminology is. Thanks to our producer, Melody Rowell. Thanks to Eddie Cooper, who does our music. And if you want to see or hear people yell at me, Leah, about my hair, smile, and or voice, please follow us on TikTok at Strict Scrutiny Podcast. (laughs) I'm very excited about following you guys on TikTok. I live by routines, especially my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. Because when Sunday rolls around, I'm not scared. I got my shopper on the way with all my favorites. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers.